couple goes for marriage counseling, as is the sacred tradition of many Jewish couples. And the marriage counselor asks them, so how is the marriage? The husband says, I'll tell you, when we got engaged, I was doing all of the talking, she was doing all of the listening. When we got married, we decided to change the system. She began doing all of the talking, and I began doing all of the listening. Now it's been 12 years later. We both do all of the talking. The neighbors do all of the listening. Tonight, we will go on a little journey. Not only into the world of relationships, but... As a springboard and a catalyst, we will analyze and dissect a text which is recited the world over every single morning in the morning prayers, Shachris. It's a text you may say every day, but often we don't give, we don't pay attention or take note of the meaning of the words we are saying. So we're going to go on a little journey into this textual analysis, explaining it from a Talmudic perspective and then applying it to our own emotional, psychological and spiritual life. Now for those who have not had a yeshiva background, you may become a little, conf you may feel that you're getting confused and it may be overwhelming and you may be tempted to block out the information, but I promise you, Stick with us, open the curriculum, and you will see that sooner than later, the pieces will come together. And you will be able to appreciate the mosaic of the discussion of the issues that we will bring up tonight. Open your curriculum on the bottom of the video, please, with the sources. And we begin tonight with the text of the morning prayer recited by Jews the world over. Its source is from Talmud, Tractate Yuma, Daf Lamed Gimel Amad Aleph, page 31a. It's source number one, or you remember it from your prayer book, from your Siddur. Abaye Hava Mesadir Seder HaMa'arocha Mishmada Gemara. The Talmudic sage Abaye would relate the order of the daily functions in the Holy Temple in the name of tradition in accordance with Abba Shaul, with the Talmudic sage whose name was Abba Shaul. And the order of the priestly functions in the Temple each morning went as follows. The large pile of wood on the altar preceded the second pile of wood on the altar. The second pile, which was smaller, used as a source for coals, which they would then take and burn the incense on these coals in the second altar, the inner altar. So first they made the larger pile of wood for the offerings, and then the smaller pile of wood. The second pile 
of wood for the incense preceded the laying of the two logs of wood. Each morning they would place two large logs of wood in the large pile of wood, upon the, on top of the large pile of wood, where they would sacrifice the sacrifices. The laying of the two logs of wood preceded the removing of the ashes from the inner altar. Every morning they would remove, clean the ashes from the inner altar. The removing of the ashes from the inner altar preceded the preparing of the five lamps. The preparing of the five lamps preceded the blood of the daily offering. The blood of the daily offering preceded the preparing of the two lamps. And the preparing of the two lamps preceded the burning of the incense. And he continues the order of the temple from morning until dusk. What is the meaning of the words? Abaya have a mesada seder amaracha alibeda abashol. He did this in accordance with the opinion of Abba Shol. What does this mean? Was there another system? Was there another opinion? Yes. For this, we have to discover a major Talmudic argument between the rabbis and the sages about the order of the services in the temple on a daily basis. And to understand this argument, let me preface. Each morning in the temple, in the Bet HaMikdash, in the Beis HaMikdash in Jerusalem, just as it was in the tabernacle in the desert, there was a mitzvah called Hatovas Haneris, cleaning the menorah, cleaning the lamps. The menorah, the candelabra, which had seven candles, was ignited, it was lit each evening, it was burned till the morning, and in the morning they would do what was called Hatovas Haneris. A priest would come and clean out the menorah clean out the ashes, clean out the remainder of the oil, clean out the old wick, and prepare it for the kindling of the menorah that evening once again. This was called Hatava Saneris, cleaning out the old and preparing a new menorah, preparing new lamps, new wicks, new oil for the next kindling. You would expect that the Kohen, the priest who did this, would clean up all of the seven lamps consecutively. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's not how it was done. First, he would prepare five of the lamps. And then he would interrupt the work. They would engage in another service in the temple. And then he would come back and resume the cleaning of the two remainder lamps. Why? Why didn't he just do all of the seven consecutively? The answer for this is the verse, the Pasuk, at the end of Parshas Tetzavah, at the end of the portion of Tetzavah, which reads as follows. The Torah is discussing at the end of the Tetzavah the construction of the inner altar. There were two altars in the temple and the tabernacle. The outer altar, upon which they would offer animal and grain sacrifices, and the inner altar, made of gold, 
upon which they would offer each day the incense. They would burn incense, creating and generating a beautiful fragrance and aroma. A lovely smell and odor. So the Torah says at the end of Tetzavah, and this is source number two in your curriculum, V'hiktir alav Aaron k'tayres samim. Aaron would burn on the inner altar k'tores samim, the incense of fragrant spices. Baboiker, baboiker, in the morning, in the morning, behitivoi eshaneiros yaktirena. When he prepared the lamps, when he cleaned the lamps, yaktirena shall he burn the incense. Baboiker, baboiker, in the morning and morning, when he's cleaning the lamps, shall he burn the incense. Why baboiker, baboiker, twice? In the morning, in the morning. So Rabbi Yochanan explains in Mesech Yume, page, Lamed Gimel, Lamed Beis 33b, Chalkeyu Lishneib Karim. Divide the cleaning of the menorah into two mornings, which means do it in two separate times in the morning. Don't clean the menorah in one shot consecutively. Baboiker, baboiker. You have to stop in the middle. And that's why they would do five. They would interrupt it, do another service in the temple, and then come back and do the other two. Reish Lakish there in the Gemara has another reason, but this is the reason Rabbi Yechanan gives to explain the source for the interruption. Now the question is, what did they do in between? Between the cleaning of the five lamps and the cleaning of the last two, what did they do in between? There's an argument. And this is source number three in your curriculum. The argument is in Talmud, in the same tractate, tractate Yuma. Dafyudalat, 14. And I read. The Tanya we have learned, it's been taught... The person should not prepare the lamps. And after that burn the incense. He should first offer the incense. And then prepare the final two lamps. He should first prepare the final lamps. And then offer the incense. So we have an argument between the sages and Abishol. Abishol was one of the sages. He was from the fourth generation of Tanoim, of the Talmudic scholars who created the Mishnah. He was a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva, and his name was Abishol. The sages believe that they would clean the five lamps. Then the priest would go to the inner altar and burn the fragrant incense, take the various spices called ketores, place it on the coals on the altar, and the smoke with an aroma would be generated as a result. The incense, the spices were burnt. And then the Kohen came back and finished cleaning the last two lamps. And then went on to the next service. Abishol disagrees. Abishol holds. They cleaned the five lamps. Then they offered the daily sacrifice. There was a lamb which was offered every day, known as the carbon tummet, 
offer that lamb and sprinkle its blood on the outer altar, and then they would resume the f- cleaning the last two lamps, and then the priest would go and burn the incense. What is the rationale behind the argument? So the Gemara continues in source number three on your curriculum. My time at Abishol, what's the reason for Abishol's view? Because the verse says at the end of Tetzavah, the verse we quoted a moment ago in source number two, Every morning when he prepares the lamps, shall he burn the incense? So what comes first? First, clean the lamps, say, Tiva Yesaneris, prepare the lamps, and then Yaktiren, and then burn the incense. So we have here the chronological order. First you clean the lamps, and then you burn the incense. Verabonan the rabbis, what is the Torah saying? At the time when the lamps are being prepared, shall you burn the incense? In other words, the rabbis say, let's read the verse again. In the morning, while he's cleaning the lamps, he shall burn the incense. It's not a chronological statement, first clean the lamps and then burn the incense, as Abishol says. Rather, what the Torah is stating is, while you're cleaning the lamps, shall you burn the incense. But no two services were done simultaneously. So what do you do? You have to interrupt it in the middle. While you're cleaning the lamps, you should burn the incense. So clean a few lamps, stop, burn the incense, and then come back and finish cleaning the lamps. Thus, the argument between Abishol and the sages. Now we will understand the text of source number one, which we began with. The text which we recite every single day during our prayers. That Abaya would relate the system and the order of the functions in the temple inconsistent with the opinion of Abishol, not the opinion of the other sages. Because what is the order which Abaya used to relate what is the order which we recite each day in our prayers from Abaya, from the Gemara in Yuma, Daflamet, Gimel, Amad, Aleph? So if you go back to that order, you'll see. He says, The cleaning of the five lambs preceded the blood of the daily offering, preceded the slaughtering and the sprinkling of the blood of the morning lamb, the morning offering which was offered each day in the temple. Next, the blood of the daily offering preceded the cleaning of the last two lamps. So you have five. You have the sacrifice of the lamb. And then you have the next two lamps. And the cleaning of the last two lamps preceded the burning of the incense on the inner altar. So whose opinion is this order consistent with? The sages or Abishol? Answer. Abishol, the sages would disagree. According to the sages, when did you burn the incense? In the middle of the cleaning of the lamps. When did you slaughter and sprinkle the blood of the daily offering? Before you began cleaning the lamps. Once you cleaned the lamps, there was no more offering, there was no more sacrifice. You cleaned five, you offered incense, you burnt the incense on the inner altar, and then you finished the last two. But Abaya follows Abishol's perspective, and therefore you interrupt the cleaning of the lamps with the daily burnt offering. You finish cleaning of the last two lamps, and then you go to burn the fragrant incense on the inner altar, generating that beautiful aroma in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, and then later in the holy temple in Jerusalem.
What is the law? What is the verdict? So Rambam, Maimonides, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, the great halachic codifier of Judaism, as well as the Smag and Sefer Mitzvah's Gadol, clearly present the verdict as the sages, and their logic is extremely straightforward. The principle in Jewish law is, Achirei Rabbim Lahatis, we follow the majority, Abashol is a minority opinion, most of the sages disagreed, and therefore Rambam and Smag, Maimonides and the Smag believe that the verdict is like the Chachamim, like the sages, that the cleaning of the lamps was interrupted with the burning of the incense, not with the sacrificing, the slaughtering, and the sprinkling of the daily blood offering. Indeed, source number four, you have the Rambam, where he clearly follows the verdict of the rabbis, the sages, in contrast with Abishol. The Rambam has in the laws of Tmidina and Musaf in chapter 6, he talks about cleaning Metivin, the Hatava of the five lamps. Now, according to the Rambam, I should just mention as a footnote, the Rambam holds that the menorah was kindled not only in the evening, but also in the morning. He holds that the menorah was kindled in the evening, but then in the morning, if any of the lamps was extinguished, if any of the flames was extinguished, the Kohen had to reignite the wick. And according to the Rambam, that is Hatavas Haneris. Hatavas Haneris is igniting the candles that were extinguished from last night. So according to the Rambam, you would first do five, and then do the Ktoras, and then continue with the last two, in source number four. Here, naturally, there's a big, big question. And the question is raised by the Beis Yosef. The Beis Yosef, Rabbi Joseph Karo, Rabbi Yosef Karo, he's the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Jewish Code of Law, the 16th century, great halachic codifier and Kabbalist from Tzvas, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, and also wrote a commentary on the Rambam called Kesef Mishnah, and also wrote a commentary on the Tur called Beis Yosef, the House of Yosef. And in his commentary on the Tur, and you have it in your next source in the curriculum, number five, Eurechayim Simen Memches, the Beis Yosef asks a gewaldike question, a great question. If the halacha, if the verdict follows the sages, not Abashol, why are we in our prayers studying the text of the system of Abashol? Why aren't we praying with the text according to the system of the sages? That's what the Bishayshif asks. The Rambam clearly gives the verdict like the rabbis, like the sages, which argue with Abishol. So why are we in our prayers embracing the opinion of Abaye and the opinion of Abishol? Abaye Ava Masada Sedina Marocha Libad Abishol. And the Beis Yosef gives the following answer. It's the second paragraph in source number five in your curricula. He says this. Me'achar shematsu ha'elam. Since the world discovered, listen to the words, the world discovered that Abayah followed the order of Abashol, so it seems that this is the final law according to Abayah. Abayah believes this is the halacha. Therefore they did not want to change from that order. But this answer of the Beis Yosef 
it seems, needs much more explanation. The Rambam did not know that Abaya followed the opinion of Abba Shaul. The Rambam also learned the Gemara in Mesechta Yuma Daflamad Gimel, source number one. Abaya Hava Mesada Seder Amarachim Mishmei the Gemara Alibad Abba Shaul. The Smag did not know that Abaya embraced the opinion of Abba Shaul. And yet they said the Halacha is like the Chachamim, like the sages. Because they are the majority, not the minority. So what is Matsuwa Oilam? The world found, discovered, that Abaya followed Abishol, which means he held that's the law. What did the world discover that the Rambam did not discover? That the Smag did not know? They also knew that Abaya embraced Abishol. But yet they said, the Halacha is not like Abaya. The Halacha, the law, is not like Abishol. The law is like the sages. Yet we reject that law in our text. And we embrace the opinion of Abba Shaul. The question, however, is really much stronger. I'm going to ask you to look at source number six. Source number six is from the text of our Yom Kippur prayers. On Yom Kippur, in the Musaf of Yom Kippur, we discuss the Avodah, the service of the priest, the high priest in the temple on Yom Kippur. And there's one of the liturgy. That one of the one of the paragraphs that begins with the words Atta Tikanta, source number six, and we read this: The priest goes into the chamber to clean out the five lamps, and to burn the incense of the morning, because the incense was also burnt in the evening, and then to clean up the final two lamps. Whose opinion are we following? Abba Shaul or the sages? Remember, he went in to clean five lambs, and what did he do afterwards? Did he burn the daily offering, or did he burn incense? He went to burn incense. So whose opinion are we following? The Chachamim, not Abba Shaul. So our own text is contradicting itself. Because according to Abba Shaul, all the days of the year, including Yom Kippur, The incense was burnt after the cleaning of the lamps. And yet, all the days of the year in our davening, including on Yom Kippur, we say, We follow the system of Abashol. And on Yom Kippur in Musaf, suddenly we contradict what we said in the morning, every other day of the year, including that very morning. And the system is now changes. The system now is five lamps, and then the other two lamps. Tonight, I want to share with you an explanation, an answer, that I had the privilege to hear from the Lubavitcher Rebbe at a Shabbos gathering of Shabbos Parshas Tetzave, the Shabbos of Tetzave, Tovshin Nun Beis, 1992. I should make note of the fact that this was one of the last addresses of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. A few weeks after this, he suffered a stroke from which he never recovered. And the explanation must be prefaced with the idea that each law and mitzvah in the Torah, in addition to having a physical, concrete explanation and manifestation, also symbolizes a spiritual and internal truth. 
This is true in our discussion as well. The two opinions of Abba Shoal and the sages about the system of the temple was not just an argument about the physical order of the services in the temple. It is also a timeless debate about the human being's inner psychological, emotional, and spiritual service to God. And when we appreciate the argument on this level, we have the wholesome picture. We understand the argument on the physical, concrete level, the halachic level. But let's try to glean insight into the argument on a spiritual, psychological level, which also allows us to relate to it in our own journey, in our own lives, and in our own struggles. To understand this, let us introduce source number seven, which is a medrash. Medrash Tachet, chapter 11. And I should say that this idea is discussed at length also in the Kleyakar, in the biblical commentator, the Kleyakar in Parshas Tetzav. The medrash says, source number seven, Shtei Mizbechis Hayu, there were two altars in the temple. Echot Shalzov, Keneged Nefesh Shaladam, there was an altar built of gold. This was the in, in, inner altar. There was an outer altar built of brass. One corresponds the, to the human soul, one corresponds to the human body. Just as the body consumes food, the copper altar consumed animal sacrifices. Just as the soul does not consume food, but the soul gleans pleasure from scent, so the inner altar, which corresponds to the soul, was not used for animal food. Only incense was offered on the golden altar Incense which creates an aroma. Two altars representing two dimensions of the human existence. The human body which eats food, and therefore the outer altar was the place where they sacrificed animals and grain and flour. The inner altar corresponds to the inner neshama, the soul. There they would not offer any animal sacrifices. Only burn incense. This is gold and this is brass, nechoshes. The explanation of this is discussed at length in various discourses, discourses in Hasidic teaching. The human being has two dimensions. We have our body and we have our soul. On a deeper level, the body represents not only the physical body, but also the animal, beastly soul, the biological consciousness which gives vitality and life to the body. And based on this consciousness, we are part of the zoological species. Every animal has a consciousness, and the human animal also has a consciousness, and it's called the Nefesh HaBahamid, the animal consciousness, the beastly consciousness, the biological consciousness. And this is part of the physical experience of human life. It's our experience of life as physical, material, bodily, beastly creatures. Then we have an internal altar, and that represents the transcendental divine 
godliness of the person, the spirituality of the person, that part of us which yearns to transcend our ego and become one with truth, become one with God. On the outer altar, we sacrifice the animal representing our struggle, our confrontation with the animal within us, with our physical, coarse, brute self, to subdue it, to elevate it, to refine it, to transform it. The inner altar represents the inner soul of the person where we don't sacrifice animals, but rather where we burn incense, where we generate the beautiful, delightful aroma and scent which comes from the fragrance. This talks to a deeper part of the person, the soul, not the body, or as the Talmud famously says in Brachais, the soul appreciates aroma. What this represents in the human journey, in the human life, Hasidus explains, Ktores, incense, represents the intimacy, the oneness of a soul with its source, with its creator. It's not about the confrontation and the fight, the battle with the animal in us. It's about cultivating our sensitivity to the scent and aroma of the beautiful elements of life, including the godliness and the holiness in life. And this is the difference between the two words, karbonos and ktoros. Karbonos are sacrifices. This was done on the outer altar. Ktoros, incense, was done on the inner altar. Karbonos comes from the word kiruv, which means coming closer. Ktoros, ketar in Aramaic, means a bond, oneness. You're not just close, but you're one. You're bound up. And therefore, on Yom Kippur, the primary service on Yom Kippur was burning of the incense. The high priest would then go into the Holy of Holies, where he never entered a holy year. And what would he do in the Holy of Holies? He would place the burning, the incense, the various spices on the coals. Again, it would generate an aroma. This was the primary work of Yom Kippur, because Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, is when we're more in tune with the inner experience of the soul. Let's just, let me try to explain these two uh, services in our own relationships, human relationships. There are relationships or marriages or different types of relationships we can define as karbonos and relationships that we can define as ketoros. There is a relationship which you have to fight in order to make it successful. There are always hindrances. There are always barriers, challenges, struggles. And you have to confront them, subdue them, overcome them. You may have to confront your instincts, your addictions, your desires, your habits, your comfort zones in order to make the relationship happen. Many marriages are characterized by this. It's just not easy. You always have to fight a certain part within yourself in order to be able to maintain this relationship. There's always something, another hindrance, another barrier you have to overcome, another challenge you have to deal with. This is what we call a carbon. There is a beast which you have to slaughter. There is an ego which you have to challenge. There is passion which you have to sacrifice. And this is the process of sacrificing the animal within you. Elevating its life, challenging its life, reorienting its blood, sprinkling it on the altar. That's one type of relationship, a relationship that is defined by struggle and confrontation. Yes, you make the sacrifice, but you have to sacrifice. You have to fight. 
You have to confront yourself continuously to make it happen. You know, they tell the story of the couple again who comes to marriage counseling. So the marriage counselor asks them, how's it going? And the husband says, I'll tell you, when we got married, my wife told me, she said, in order to make this marriage work, she'll be in charge on the small decisions. I will take care of the big decisions. She will not mix into the big decisions. I don't even have to run them by her. I should not mix into the small decisions. She will not run them by me. Sounded like a great deal. But you know, it's just not working the way I thought it would be. I need some more clarification on this stipulation. It's been 10 years now, and I just don't like the system. So the therapist turns to the woman and says, so clarify the stipulation. What did you mean? She said, what I meant was very simple. All the big decisions in life, for example, how long should the U.S. remain in Iraq? What should be our policy in Afghanistan? What should be our policy in the Middle East? What do we do with the stimulus package? These decisions he makes, I don't mix into them. He doesn't even have to run them by me. He can communicate directly with President Obama and share with him his important feelings on the matter. The small decisions in life, for example, how much money I spend on the credit card, where we live, which school do we send our children to, which school do we not step foot into, how many pairs of shoes do I buy a week. Small, inconsequential little decisions, these I make and I don't run them by him. So indeed, often relationships must be navigated, fought for. This is the carbon type of relationship, where there's a sacrifice that's necessary, and often it's necessary on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. Especially people who are very sensitive, people who are strong-minded, people who are very passionate, and so on and so forth. Then there is the relationship which is like Taurus, just a sweet, beautiful fragrance and aroma. For you, the relationship is a continuously enjoyable experience. You sense the beautiful scent and aroma it introduces into your life. There is no confrontation, there's no war, you're not slaughtering an animal, you're not sprinkling its blood. You're melting away in the ecstasy, in the delight, in the pleasure of the harmony, of the intimacy, of the unity. Now, of course, in most relationships, there are different stages, there are different times. There are relationships that are characterized by carbonos, there are relationships that are characterized by ktoris, and most relationships, I would say, fluctuate, they change. The only relationships that I personally know that are perfect, impeccable, flawless, are the relationships I don't know well. Most relationships fluctuate. There are moments of confrontation, there are moments of collision. There are moments of conflict which you have to overcome and deal with. And then there are moments of, of, great, of great romance, of great pleasure, of great delight. I hope this is one of those moments. Two altars, two services. Each day in the temple they did both. They offered a sacrifice on the outer altar, corresponding to our service of God, where we confront our animal and we must excavate the beast and find the ability to dedicate ourselves to God, to truth. And the inner altar, which was simply 
exploring the inner idealism that exists, the beauty, the purity, the holiness, the fragrance that is already there. Now, based on this, let's go back to the argument. In addition to these two altars, there was a menorah, there was a candelabra. And the candelabra they lit each morning, each evening, each night. And it had seven lamps. And this represents the human soul. The verse says, Neir Hashem Nishmas Adam. The verse in Proverbs. The candle of God is the human soul. The soul is a flame. And each night they would light up the candelabra. And in a sense, spiritually, it represents the igniting of the human soul. That the human soul is on fire. It's a flame. It's a glow. And there were seven lamps because the human soul has seven dimensions. Seven midot, seven emotions. Chesed, gvura, tiferes, netzach, hod, yisod, malchus. Love, strength, beauty or empathy, victory, consistency, bonding, and leadership, royalty, malchus. Each lamp represented one of the emotions, one of the types of souls that were being ignited. Although each of us has all seven, but primarily each of us has one point in which we're stronger than another. And the priest would ignite each type of soul. But in order to ignite the souls, you have to clean them. This was Hatavas Haneris. So each morning the priest had to clean up the lamp, clean it from the ashes, clean it from the old wick, from the old oil, put in new oil, put in a new wick, fresh it, refresh it, so that the menorah can be kindled again. So the menorah represents kindling the light in our soul. Cleaning the menorah is preparing, cleaning up the system. So that we can generate the light in our soul. Generate the divine light, the divine inspiration, the divine fire and flame in our soul. On all seven levels. Chesed, Gvura, Tiferes, Netzachod, Yesod, Malchus. Here there are two opinions. You cleaned up the five lamps. You're about to clean up the next two. But before that... In order to be able to clean up the final two. What are the final two? Yisod and Malchot. Now without getting into here a detailed discussion on the system of the seven emotions. Because that's a different discussion. Let me just say, Yisod and Malchot are the final two emotions which get things done. They are the two emotions which are closest to the practical world. Chesed is an inner emotion of love. Gvur is an inner emotion of strength. Tiferes is an inner emotion of empathy. Netzach is an inner emotion of ambition, victory. Get it done, despite all odds. Hod is the inner, the, inner, the inner emotion of consistency. It's an internal stubbornness. Yisod is the actual ability, the charming ability of charisma to bond. To bond with people. To bond with the other. And Malchut leadership is actually execution, implementation. There are people who have very noble and idealistic emotions inside, but they don't know how to bond and they don't know how to get things done. Yisod and Malchus are the final two emotions. And these are represented in the last two lamps of the menorah. And here we have the argument between the rabbis and Abishol. 
according to the sages, in order to really get the menorah clean and ready to be ignited, you have to have ktoras. You have to ignite the incense. You have to sense the beautiful and delightful aroma, the beauty, the sweetness, the depth, the majesty of godliness, of holiness, of Torah, of mitzvahs, then you can finish cleaning and preparing the last two lamps to be ignited. But if you don't have the ktoris, if you don't cultivate that aroma, if you don't sensitize yourself to that smell, to that odor, if you don't appreciate and you don't sense the beauty, the geschmack, the beautiful scent and smell of Torah, and of godliness, of holiness, you can't really prepare the menorah to be fully ignited. The last two lamps, Yisod and Malchut, cannot be prepared to be ignited. Especially according to the Rambam who holds that the cleaning was the igniting. You can't ignite the last two lamps without Ktoris, without burning the incense. Abba Shol has a different opinion. He says, no, you clean the five lamps. Then you interrupted it, but what did you do? You didn't burn the incense. You went back to the outer altar where you sacrificed and sprinkled the blood of the Dam HaTomid, the daily offering. You basically went and slaughtered, confronted, subdued your animal soul on the outer altar. Then you go back and you clean the two lamps and only later do you burn the incense independently. What does Abba Shoal mean? Abba Shoal means a borrowed father. Representing a very different paradigm than the other sages. There is a Jew who feels that he or she has a father. There's a Jew who could look up to heaven, look into his soul and say, Tata, Mama, Father, Mother, it's my father. Just as emotionally there's families where children have close emotional relationships with their parents. You could say father and you feel it. You say mother and you know what mother is. But there are people who are in the state of Abashol. I have to borrow my father. I don't have a father. I don't have an intimate, direct relationship with my father in heaven. I have to borrow my father. It's borrowed. There are two types of relationships, again. There's a relationship where you on your own, you're passionate about your relationship and sometimes your relationship is borrowed from elsewhere. You take your information from somewhere else. You have to mimic somebody else. You do things because it's the right thing to do because you read about it somewhere. It's borrowed. You can't call it your own. It's not a real internal experience. So sometimes there's a Jew that he turns to God. It's my tata. It's Abba, my father. But Abba Shol says sometimes we're in a state that the father is only borrowed. I don't feel that direct, intimate, passionate relationship with God speaking to me from the depth of my soul. I don't have yet the Ktoiris. I don't have yet that beautiful aroma. And therefore, Abba Shaul says, don't think that you cannot ignite the lamps. Don't think that you cannot get the menorah prepared to light up with the flame of the soul even though you did not yet ignite the incense. You have Damatomid. You're still holding by the Dama Tamid. You still have to slaughter. You still have to sacrifice. You still have to confront the beast within you. That is what was done in the midst of the process of cleaning the lamps. Abaya 
follows the perspective of Abba Shol. Who was Abaya? Abaya was an Amira, one of the greatest Talmudic sages, the third generation of Amirayim. He was a Kohen. Why did they give him the name Abaya? Abaya had a tragic story. Abaya didn't have any parents. If you look in source number 8, the Talmud tells us in Kiddushin, 31b, Lamed Aleph Amid Beis, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan, Ki Ibrata Yimai Meis, Aviv, Yaldasai Meis Yimai Vechen Abaya. When Rabbi Yochanan was conceived, after his mother was pregnant with him, his father died. After he was born, his mother died. The same happened to Abaya. Abaya didn't have parents. He was raised by his father's brother. His father's brother's name was Rabba, the son of Nachmeni. A very famous Talmudic sage. Rabba bar Nachmeni. According to the Aruch, Abaya had the name Nachmeni. But his uncle didn't want to call him with the name Nachmeni because his own father's name was Nachmeni. He said, of respect to his father, he didn't want to call his nephew by his name. So he gave him a name Abaya. Abaya is like Avi, my father. Basically demonstrating the fact that his name is like my father. Abaya, he's like Abaya, Avi. Abaya, Avi, he's like my father. He has the same name. That's what the Aruch writes. But the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, tells us something else. Source number 9, the Arizal says in Shara, Gilgulam Agdam Alam the 34th introduction to the portal of reincarnation. Abaya was an orphan. He didn't see his father nor his mother. And you have it in his name, Abaya. There is a verse in Hosea, Isaiah. Isaiah says in chapter 14, Asher Yerucham Yosem. It is in you where the orphan will find love and compassion. The orphan has no father, has no mother to nurture him, to give him or her the confidence, the love, the wholesomeness they need. Asher In you the orphan must find his identity, must find his love, his compassion. He must find love. Abaya is the acronym of those four words. Abaya. Asher Becha Yerucham Yasem. Since Abaya was a round orphan, they gave him the name Abaya. Asher Becha Yerucham Yasem. The Seder Adairis also quotes this from the reason. There's an interesting story I want to share with you. It's a story that's told by Hasidim. The Yid HaKadosh, the Holy Yid, one of the great Hasidic masters in Poland, would learn each day with his students a class in the Gemara. There was one boy, a student, who was an orphan. He didn't have a father. He came from the city of Pshischa. And one day, the Yid HaKadosh, the Heleke Yid, as he was called, the Yid HaKadosh, he was giving his class, and in the middle he got stuck, and he began meditating on one of the ideas that he was discussing. And this student, the orphan, knew that each time this happens, it can take a very long time until he figures out the answer to his dilemma. And this boy was very hungry. He was extremely hungry, so he left the class and he went home to his mother, who was a widow, to eat something. And when he finished eating, he immediately jumped up to go back to the yeshiva to study because he didn't want to miss the continuation of the lecture. 
As he was leaving, his mother, the widow, calls him and asks him to bring something down, to bring down straw from the roof. So he told her, you know, Ma, I would love to, but I can't. I'm going to miss the shear. I ran away to eat something. I can do it later. I have to leave. And he left. On the road, as he's going back to the yeshiva, he thinks to himself, why am I learning? What's the value of all my learning if I'm not going to respect my mother who's a widow and just fulfill her request? What's the value of all my learning? The objective of study is action, to change character, to refine yourself, not just to be an intellectual computer genius. So he goes back and he fulfills his mother's request. And then he goes back to the yeshiva to study. And when he opens the door, the Yid HaKadosh wakes up from his meditation and he asks the student, what happened? Is there something that happened with you now? He says, I went home, I ate something. No, tell me the whole story. So he tells him the whole story with his mother. She asked him to do something. He didn't want to do it. He left. He came back. So the Yid HaKadosh said, how do I know that something happened? Let me tell you what happened. Abaya, the Talmudic sage, never had parents. And that's why he's called Abaya. Abaya has a custom. That when a Jew fulfills the mitzvah of respecting a father and a mother, Abaya's soul escorts this Jew because he wants to have part of the mitzvah because he never had a chance to fulfill this mitzvah. When this boy came into the yeshiva, I saw that Abaya was there. So I understood he did the mitzvah of respecting his mother. And Abaya shared with me the answer to the dilemma I am having in the class. And let me share that with you. So Abishol, a borrowed father, can really apply to Abaya. And that's why Abaya, he created a system. He followed whose system? Abishol's system. And this has to do on a spiritual level with a very fascinating story in the Talmud. And this is source number 10. Brachas daf memches amad alef. Brachas page 48a. The Gemara tells a story. Abaya and Rava's children were sitting in front of Rabbah. Who was Rabbah? Abaya's uncle, his father's brother. He raised him. And Rabbah asked him, Amalu Rabbah l'mimavarichin. Rabbah asked Abaya and Rava, these are two great sages as children. Who do we bless to when we say grace after meals? Whom are we thanking? Amri Leila Rachmana, they told him we're blessing God. We're thanking God. So Rabbah said, Rachmana Yosef. Where is God? Where does God sit? Where is God? Rava Lala. Rava pointed to the roof. Rava pointed up the roof. God is there. Abaya Nafik Lebra Abaya went outside and he pointed to the heavens. Omalu Rabbi Rabbi told them you're both going to be great rabbis. Butzin Butzin Mekatfa Yidia people say. You can recognize a person when he's still a child. From the child's behavior you can recognize who he or she will be as an adult. I want to ask you, my friends, what's the meaning of the story? Rava pointed to the roof, to the ceiling, to the balcony. Abaya went outside and pointed to the heavens. So in Torah's Levi Yitzchak, a monumental Kabbalistic work authored by Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, the rabbi of Dnepro Petrovsk in Ukraine, the father of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he explains that it represents two types of relationships to God. What he calls makif ha-karev, makif ha-rachik, but I'm going to explain it a little bit in my own words. 
based on the idea he says. There's two ways that you can relate to God. One is you point to the roof. The roof is above you, but it's accessible. You can see it. It's right here. You can climb up and touch it. You can go on your roof. You can jump on your roof. When you point to heaven, heaven is inaccessible. Heaven is infinitely remote. It's infinitely removed. Sometimes you can relate to God. God is above you, but you can touch it. You can feel it. You can sense it. You can experience it. Sometimes, Abba Shol, your father is borrowed. You don't have that immediate encounter with your father. Abaya was an orphan biologically, but it came to represent his spiritual and psychological way of serving God. Because he was an orphan, because he didn't have a tangible father, he also related to God that way. Asher Yerucham Yasem. For him, God, transcendence had to be much more real. For him, something totally removed and sublime had to be much more real. He didn't have that immediate cocoon, that nest to shelter him and embrace him. He had to relate to remote truths as something much more real, much more personal. He points to the roof. He doesn't, he doesn't point to the roof, he points to heaven. So when it comes to the spiritual life of the Jew as well, Abaya follows the system of Abishol. The system of Abishol is one in which... Between the cleaning of five lamps and the cleaning of the other two lamps, you don't have the opportunity to ignite the incense and generate an aroma. What you do is you slaughter and you sprinkle the blood of the daily sacrifice on the outer altar, not on the inner altar. This, from a Kabbalistic, Hasidic, internal perspective, explains the deeper dimension in the words of the Beis Yosef, source number five, Matsu Ha'ilam, the world discovered that Abaya follows the opinion of Abishol, and that's why we do it each day in our prayers. And we ask the question the halach is not like Abishol. And the answer is this Matsu Ha'ilam, the world discovered. Olam, the masters tell us, Olam, the world comes from the word Helam, which means concealment. It's based on a Gemara in Psachim. Olam comes from the word Helam. Matsu Ha'ilam, the world discovered. When we're in a state of olam, of concealment, when we are orphaned, when we are in exile, the Talmud says exile is banim shegalum al shulchan avim. The Gemara in Brachas, children who are exiled from the table, from the mansion of their father. When we're orphaned from our relationship with our soul, our relationship with God, Abba Shol, we feel that we have to borrow a father. We can't see our father. We can't feel our father. We can't sense our father. Do you give up? What do you do? Do you serve God? Can you serve God? So Abishol says, even when you don't have the Ketiris, can you still clean your menorah? Can you still prepare your candelabra? Can, you still, can your life be filled with light? Very often a person feels, if I don't sense the aroma, if I don't sense the ecstasy, if I don't feel the powerful scent, is my service worthwhile? Is it meaningful? Is there inspiration in my life? Is there a menorah in my life? Is there a potential for me lighting up my life? Sometimes in marriages, if people don't feel the Torah's descent, they want to give up. There's no light in this relationship. There's no menorah in this relationship. Is there a potential for creating a flame, a passion, a romance, a light? So Abishol and Abayi say 100%. You're holding only by Dama Tomid. You're still dealing with an animal. And you have to fight your beast. 
And you have to sacrifice your beast. And you have to sprinkle, reorient the passion. And in that process, you prepare the lamps for the menorah. Later, later you'll be able to reach Ktoris. You'll be able to reach the incense. That's all year. Besides Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, when we're saying the Avoidah and Musaf, on Yom Kippur, every Jewish soul is exposed. On Yom Kippur, the deepest sense of self is revealed. On Yom Kippur, it's not Abba Shol anymore. On Yom Kippur, every Jew screams, Hashem Elikim. And therefore, on Yom Kippur, in the middle of cleaning the lamps, you feel the Ketoris. You can ignite the sense. You can ignite the incense. And therefore, you have to ignite the incense. And when you ignite the incense, you can finish cleaning the lamps. That's Yom Kippur. But that's only on Yom Kippur. The rest of the year, we don't follow the text of the sages. We follow the text of Abashol. Each morning before we daven, we say, Abaya Hava Mesadis, Seder Amarach, Alibada Abashol. What are we saying? You're getting up to pray in the morning, including this morning, tomorrow morning, every morning. Sometimes you stand up to pray and a Jew feels, I'm not connected to anything. I don't have any feelings. I don't have any passion. There's no romance. There's no idealism. I'm not in the mood. I'm smug. I'm sluggish. I'm heavy. And now I'm going to daven. Who am I going to daven to? On this suite, for this, we tell the Jew, Abaya have a Abaya used to share with us the system of the service in the temple, including your temple. True, your Abba Shol, you feel that your father is borrowed. But even you have a Seder Hamarach. Even you have a system of fulfilling the services in your own temple. Each day you can offer the blood of the daily offering. Each day you can take your animal and beast and subdue it and challenge it and channel it and give it to God. And therefore you can clean your lamps and prepare it to ignite even though at that time you're still incapable of igniting the incense of igniting and burning and generating that fragrant spiritual aroma. And this explains another very interesting contrast and contradiction. If you look in source 11 in your curriculum, what do we have in source number 11? We have two Mishnas. In tractate Tamid and in tractate Yuma. In Mesechta Tamid chapter 6, we have the order following Abashol. Misha Zoycha Bedishna Menoyer Nichnas, Misha Zoycha Bektoris. First, cleaning the menorah, and then incense Ktoris. In Yuma, Perek Aleph Mishnah Beis, Zoycha Sadam, Makteris, Aktoris, Metevis Aneris. Sprinkle the blood of the offering, you ignite the incense, and then you clean the lamps, the last two lamps. So the Talmud explains, the Gemara explains in Yuma, the Mishnah in Tamid follows Abashol, the Mishnah in Yuma follows the Chachama. Now according to this explanation, we understand it in a crystal clear new fashion. Yuma means day. Mesechta Yuma, tractate Yuma discusses Yom Kippur. On the day of Yom Kippur, in the Mishnah dealing with Yom Kippur, the Mishnah articulates the opinion of the sages. Tamid means continuity. Tamid doesn't deal with a particular day. Tamid describes the work in the Beis Hamikdash on a daily basis. On a daily basis, on a perpetual basis, we're in the state of Abba Shol. Many of us, or most of us, don't have that 
pleasant, delightful aroma continuously on a daily basis, feeling the beauty, the pleasure of serving God. We have to fight, we have to struggle, we have to excavate, we have to dig. You've got to go through the layers and find the light. But on Yom Kippur, Mesech Yuma, now it's the opinion of the sages. We're in middle of the cleaning. What empowers you, what gives you the confidence, what gives you the motivation, and what allows you to really prepare your menorah and light your menorah is the Ktoris. And this is the difference between the two worlds. And that's the reason why in our prayers, despite the fact that the halacha, in the time of the temple, the halacha was like the sages, not like Abishol, and that's what the Rambam is addressing, but in our prayer, in a time of exile, physical exile and emotional exile, when we're in a state of Abaya, Asher Becha, Yerucham, Yasem, exiled from the table of our Father. Abishol, we need to borrow our Father. In this state, we embrace in our prayers every day besides Yom Kippur the system of Abishol, knowing that in our war and in our confrontation on a daily basis with the darkness within us, we can find the spark of light. We can ignite the menorah within each and every one of our hearts. Have a good night. Oh, you.